Intelligence excusitis, or ILAC brains, is common. In fact, it's so common that perhaps as many as 95% of the people around us have it in varying degrees. Unlike most other types of excusitis, people suffering from this particular type of the malady suffer in silence. Not many people will admit openly that they think they lack adequate intelligence. Rather, they feel it deep down inside. Most of us make two basic errors with respect to intelligence. One, we underestimate our own brain power. Two, we overestimate the other fellow's brain power. Because of these errors, many people sell themselves short. They fail to tackle challenging situations because it takes a brain. But along comes the fellow who isn't concerned about intelligence, and he gets the job. What really matters is not how much intelligence you have, but how you use what you do have. The thinking that guides your intelligence is much more important than the quantity of your brain power. Let me repeat, for this is vitally important. The thinking that guides your intelligence is much more important than how much intelligence you may have. In answering the question, should your child be a scientist, Dr. Edward Teller, one of the nation's foremost physicists, said, A child does not need a lightning-fast mind to be a scientist, nor does he need a miraculous memory, nor is it necessary that he get very high grades in school. The only point that counts is that the child have a high degree of interest in science. Interest, enthusiasm, is the critical factor even in science. With a positive, optimistic, and cooperative attitude, a person with an IQ of 100 will earn more money, win more respect, and achieve more success than a negative, pessimistic, uncooperative individual with an IQ of 120. Just enough sense to stick with something, a chore, task, project, until it's completed, pays off much better than idle intelligence, even if idle intelligence be of genius caliber. For stickability is 95% of ability. At a homecoming celebration last year, I met a college friend whom I had not seen for 10 years. Chuck was a very bright student and was graduated with honors. His goal when I last saw him was to own his own business in western Nebraska. I asked Chuck what kind of business he finally established. Well, he confessed, I didn't go into business for myself. I wouldn't have said this to anyone five years ago or even one year ago, but now I'm ready to talk about it. As I look back at my college education now, I see that I became an expert in why a business idea won't work out. I learned every conceivable pitfall, every reason why a small business will fail. You've got to have ample capital. Be sure the business cycle is right. Is there a big demand for what you will offer? Is local industry stabilized? A thousand and one things to check out. The thing that hurts most is that several of my old high school friends, who never seemed to have much on the ball and didn't even go to college, now are very well established in their own businesses. But me, I'm just plodding along, auditing freight shipments. Had I been drilled a little more in why a small business can succeed, I'd be better off in every way today. The thinking that guided Chuck's intelligence was a lot more important than the amount of Chuck's intelligence. Why Some Brilliant People Are Failures I've been close for many years to a person who qualifies as a genius, has high abstract intelligence, and is Phi Beta Kappa. Despite this very high native intelligence, he is one of the most unsuccessful people I know. He has a very mediocre job. He's afraid of responsibility. He is never married. Lots of marriages end in divorce. He has few friends. People bore him. He's never invested in property of any kind. He might lose his money. This man uses his great brain power to prove why things won't work rather than directing his mental power to searching for ways to succeed. Because of the negative thinking that guides his great reservoir of brains, this fellow contributes little and creates nothing. With a changed attitude, he could do great things indeed. 
He has the brains to be a tremendous success, but not the thought power. Another person I know well was inducted into the Army shortly after earning a Ph.D. degree from a leading New York university. How did he spend his three years in the Army? Not as an officer, not as a staff specialist. Instead, for three years, he drove a truck. Why? Because he was filled with negative attitudes toward fellow soldiers, I'm superior to them, toward Army methods and procedures, they are stupid, Toward discipline, it's for others, not me. Toward everything, including himself. I'm a fool for not figuring out a way to escape this rap. This fellow earned no respect from anyone. All his vast store of knowledge lay buried. His negative attitudes turned him into a flunky. Remember, the thinking that guides your intelligence is much more important than how much intelligence you have. Not even a Ph.D. degree can override this basic success principle. Several years ago, I became a close friend of Phil F., one of the senior officers of a major advertising agency. Phil was director of marketing research for the agency, and he was doing a bang-up job. Was Phil a brain? Far from it. Phil knew next to nothing about research technique. He knew next to nothing about statistics. He was not a college graduate, though all the people working for him were, and Phil did not pretend to know the technical side of research. What then enabled Phil to command $30,000 a year, while not one of his subordinates earned $10,000? This. Phil was a human engineer. Phil was 100% positive. Phil could inspire others when they felt low. Phil was enthusiastic. He generated enthusiasm. Phil understood people, and because he could really see what made them tick, he liked them. Not Phil's brains, but how he managed those brains made him three times more valuable to his company than men who rated higher on the IQ scale. Out of every 100 persons who enroll in college, fewer than 50 will graduate. I was curious about this so I asked a director of admissions at a large university for his explanation. It's not insufficient intelligence, he said. We don't admit them if they don't have sufficient ability. And it's not money. Anyone who wants to support himself in college today can do so. The real reason is attitudes. You would be surprised, he said. How many young people leave because they don't like their professors, the subjects they must take, and their fellow students? The same reason, negative thinking, explains why the door to top-flight executive positions is closed to many young junior executives. Sour, negative, pessimistic, depreciating attitudes, rather than insufficient intelligence, hold back thousands of young executives. As one executive told me, it's a rare case when we pass up a young fellow because he lacks brains. Nearly always, it's attitude. Once, I was retained by an insurance company to learn why the top 25% of the agents were selling over 75% of the insurance, while the bottom 25% of the agents sold only 5% of total volume. Thousands of personnel files were carefully checked. The search proved beyond any question that no significant difference existed in native intelligence. What's more? Differences in education did not explain the difference in selling success. The difference in the very successful and the very unsuccessful finally reduced to differences in attitudes or difference in thought management. The top group worried less, was more enthusiastic, had a sincere liking for people. We can't do much to change the amount of native ability, but we can certainly change the way we use what we have. Knowledge is power, when you use it constructively. Closely allied to intelligence exusitis is some incorrect thinking about knowledge. We often hear that knowledge is power, but this statement is only a half-truth. Knowledge is only potential power. Knowledge is power only when put to use, and then only when the use made of it is constructive. 
The story is told that the great scientist Einstein was once asked how many feet are in a mile. Einstein's reply was, I don't know. Why should I fill my brain with facts I can find in two minutes in any standard reference book? Einstein taught us a big lesson. He felt it was more important to use your mind to think than to use it as a warehouse for facts. One time, Henry Ford was involved in a libel suit with the Chicago Tribune. The Tribune had called Ford an ignoramus, and Ford said, in effect, prove it. The Tribune asked him scores of simple questions, such as, who was Benedict Arnold? When was the Revolutionary War fought? And others, most of which Ford, who had little formal education, could not answer. Finally, he became quite exasperated and said, I don't know the answers to those questions, but I could find a man in five minutes who does. Henry Ford was never interested in miscellaneous information. He knew what every major executive knows, that the ability to know how to get information is more important than using the mind as a garage for facts. How much is a fact man worth? I spent a very interesting evening recently with a friend who is the president of a young but rapidly growing manufacturing concern. The TV set happened to be turned to one of the most popular quiz programs. The fellow being quizzed had been on the show for several weeks. He could answer questions on all sorts of subjects, many of which seemed nonsensical. After the fellow answered a particularly odd question, something about a mountain in Argentina, my host looked at me and said, How much do you think I'd pay that guy to work for me? How much, I asked. Not a cent over three hundred dollars, not per week, not per month, but for life. I've sized him up. That expert can't think. He can only memorize. He's just a human encyclopedia, and I figure for three hundred dollars I can buy a pretty good set of encyclopedias. In fact, maybe that's too much. Ninety percent of what that guy knows I can find in a two-dollar almanac. What I want around me, he continued, are people who can solve problems, who can think up ideas, people who can dream and then develop the dream into a practical application. An idea man can make money with me. A fact man can't. Three easy ways to cure intelligence excusitis are Number one, never underestimate your own intelligence and never overestimate the intelligence of others. Don't sell yourself short. Concentrate on your assets. Discover your superior talents. Remember, it's not how many brains you've got that matters. Rather, it's how you use your brains that counts. Manage your brains instead of worrying about how much IQ you've got. Number two, Remind yourself several times daily, my attitudes are more important than my intelligence. At work and at home, practice positive attitudes. See the reasons why you can do it, not the reasons why you can't. Develop an I'm winning attitude. Put your intelligence to creative, positive use. Use it to find ways to win, not to prove you will lose. Number three. Remember that the ability to think is of much greater value than the ability to memorize facts. Use your mind to create and develop ideas, to find new and better ways to do things. Ask yourself, am I using my mental ability to make history, or am I using it merely to record history made by others? 3. It's no use. I'm too old or too young. Age excusitis, the failure disease of never being the right age, comes in two easily identifiable forms, the I'm-too-old variety and the I'm-too-young brand. You've heard hundreds of people of all ages explain their mediocre performance in life something like this. I'm too old, or too young, to break in now. I can't do what I want to do or am capable of doing because of my age handicap. Really, it's surprising how few people feel they are just right age-wise, and it's unfortunate. 
This excuse has closed the door of real opportunity to thousands of individuals. They think their age is wrong, so they don't even bother to try. The I'm too old variety is the most common form of age excusitis. This disease is spread in subtle ways. TV fiction is produced about the big executive who lost his job because of a merger and can't find another because he's too old. Mr. Executive looks for months to find another job, but he can't, and in the end, after contemplating suicide for a while, he decides to rationalize that it's nice to be on the shelf. Plays and magazine articles on the topic, Why You Are Washed Up at Forty, are popular, not because they represent true facts, but because they appeal to many worried minds looking for an excuse. How to Handle Age Excusitis Age excusitis can be cured. A few years ago, while I was conducting a sales training program, I discovered a good serum that both cures this disease and vaccinates you so you won't get it in the first place. In that training program, there was a trainee named Cecil. Cecil, who was 40, wanted to shift over to set himself up as a manufacturer's representative, but he thought he was too old. After all, he explained, I'd have to start from scratch, and I'm too old for that now. I'm 40. I talked with Cecil several times about his old age problem. I used the old medicine, you're only as old as you feel, but I found I was getting nowhere. Too often, people retort with, but I do feel old. Finally, I discovered a method that worked. One day, after a training session, I tried it on Cecil. I said, Cecil, when does a man's productive life begin? He thought a couple of seconds and answered, Oh, when he's about twenty, I guess. Okay, I said. Now, when does a man's productive life end? Cecil answered, Well, if he stays in good shape and likes his work, I guess a man is still pretty useful when he's seventy or so. All right, I said. A lot of folks are highly productive after they reach seventy, but let's agree with what you've just said. A man's productive years stretch from 20 to 70. That's 50 years in between, or half a century. Cecil, I said, you're 40. How many years of productive life have you spent? 20, he answered. And how many have you left? 30, he replied. In other words, Cecil, you haven't even reached the halfway point. You've used up only 40% of your productive years. I looked at Cecil and realized he'd gotten the point. He was cured of age excusitis. Cecil saw he still had many opportunity-filled years left. He switched from thinking, I'm already old, to, I'm still young. Cecil now realized that how old we are is not important. It's one's attitude toward age that makes it a blessing or a barricade. Curing yourself of age excusitis often opens doors to opportunities that you thought were locked tight. A relative of mine spent years doing many different things, selling, operating his own business, working in a bank, but he never quite found what he really wanted to do most. Finally, he concluded that the one thing he wanted more than anything else was to be a minister. But when he thought about it, he found he was too old. After all, he was 45 had three young children and little money. But fortunately, he mustered all of his strength and told himself, Forty-five or not, I'm going to be a minister. With tons of faith but little else, he enrolled in a five-year ministerial training program in Wisconsin. Five years later, he was ordained as a minister and settled down with a fine congregation in Illinois. Old? Of course not. He still has 20 years of productive life ahead of him. I talked with this man not long ago, and he said to me, You know, if I had not made that great decision when I was 45, I would have spent the rest of my life growing old and bitter. Now I feel every bit as young as I did 25 years ago. And he almost looked it, too. When you lick age excusitis, 
The natural result is to gain the optimism of youth and feel of youth. When you beat down your fears of age limitations, you add years to your life as well as success. A former university colleague of mine provides an interesting angle on how age excusitis was defeated. Bill was graduated from Harvard in the 1920s. After 24 years in the stock brokerage business, during which time he made a modest fortune, Bill decided he wanted to become a college professor. Bill's friends warned him that he would overtax himself in the rugged learning program ahead. But Bill was determined to reach his goal and enrolled in the University of Illinois at the age of 51. At 55, he had earned his degree. Today, Bill is chairman of the Department of Economics at a fine liberal arts college. He's happy, too. He smiles when he says, I've got almost a third of my good years left. Old age is a failure disease. Defeat it by refusing to let it hold you back. When is a person too young? The I'm too young variety of age excusitis does much damage, too. About a year ago, a 23-year-old fellow named Jerry came to me with a problem. Jerry was a fine young man. He had been a paratrooper in the service and then had gone to college. While going to college, Jerry supported his wife and son by selling for a large transfer and storage company. He had done a terrific job, both in college and for his company. But today, Jerry was worried. Dr. Schwartz, he said, I've got a problem. My company has offered me the job of sales manager. This would make me supervisor over eight salesmen. Congratulations, that's wonderful news, I said. But you seem worried. Well, he continued, all eight men I'm to supervise are from seven to twenty-one years older than I. What do you think I should do? Can I handle it? Jerry, I said, the general manager of your company obviously thinks you're old enough or he wouldn't have offered you this job. Just remember these three points and everything will work out just fine. First, don't be age conscious. Back on the farm, a boy became a man when he proved he could do the work of a man. His number of birthdays had nothing to do with it, and this applies to you. When you prove you are able to handle the job of sales manager, you're automatically old enough. Second, don't take advantage of your new gold bars. Show respect for the salesmen. Ask them for their suggestions. Make them feel they are working for a team captain, not a dictator. Do this, and the men will work with you, not against you. Third, get used to having older persons working for you. Leaders in all fields soon find they are younger than many of the people they supervise. So get used to having older men work for you. It will help you a lot in the coming years, when even bigger opportunities develop. And remember, Jerry, your age won't be a handicap unless you make it one. Today, Jerry's doing fine. He loves the transportation business, and now he's planning to organize his own company in a few years. Youth is a liability only when the youth thinks it is. You often hear that certain jobs require considerable physical maturity, jobs like selling securities and insurance, that you've got to have either gray hair or no hair at all in order to gain an investor's confidence is plain nonsense. What really matters is how well you know your job. If you know your job and understand people, you're sufficiently mature to handle it. Age has no real relation to ability, unless you convince yourself that years alone will give you the stuff you need to make your mark. Many young people feel that they are being held back because of their youth. Now, it is true that another person in an organization who is insecure and job-scared may try to block your way forward, using age or some other reason. But the people who really count in the company will not. They will give you as much responsibility as they feel you can handle well. Demonstrate that you have ability and positive attitudes, and your youthfulness will be considered an advantage. In quick recap, the cure for age excusitis is Number 1. Look at your present age positively. 
think, I'm still young, not, I'm already old. Practice looking forward to new horizons and gain the enthusiasm and the feel of youth. Number two, compute how much productive time you have left. Remember, a person age 30 still has 80% of his productive life ahead of him. And the 50-year-old still has a big 40%, the best 40% of his opportunity years left. Life is actually longer than most people think. 3. Invest future time in doing what you really want to do. It's too late only when you let your mind go negative and think it's too late. Stop thinking, I should have started years ago. That's failure thinking. Instead think, I'm going to start now. My best years are ahead of me. That's the way successful people think. 4. But my case is different. I attract bad luck. Recently, I heard a traffic engineer discuss highway safety. He pointed out that upward of 40,000 persons are killed each year in so-called traffic accidents. The main point of his talk was that there is no such thing as a true accident. What we call an accident is the result of human or mechanical failure, or a combination of both. What this traffic expert was saying substantiates what wise men throughout the ages have said. There is a cause for everything. Nothing happens without a cause. There is nothing accidental about the weather outside today. It is the result of specific causes. And there is no reason to believe that human affairs are an exception. Yet hardly a day passes that you do not hear someone blame his problems on bad luck. And it's a rare day that you do not hear someone attribute another person's success to good luck. Let me illustrate how people succumb to luck excusitis. I lunched recently with three young junior executives. The topic of conversation that day was George C., who just yesterday had been picked from among their group for a major promotion. Why did George get the position? These three fellows dug up all sorts of reasons. Luck, pull, bootlicking, George's wife and how she flattered the boss. Everything but the truth. The facts were that George was simply better qualified. He had been doing a better job. He was working harder. He had a more effective personality. I also knew that the senior officers in the company had spent much time considering which one of the four would be promoted. My three disillusioned friends should have realized that top executives don't select major executives by drawing names from a hat. I was talking about the seriousness of luck excusitis not long ago with a sales executive of a machine tool manufacturing company. He became excited about the problem and began to talk about his own experience with it. I've never heard it called that before, he said, but it is one of the most difficult problems every sales executive has to wrestle with. Just yesterday, a perfect example of what you're talking about happened in my company. One of the salesmen walked in about 4 o'clock with a $112,000 order for machine tools. Another salesman, whose volume is so low he's a problem, was in the office at the time. Hearing John tell the good news, he rather enviously congratulated him and then said, Well, John, you're lucky again. Now, what the weak salesman won't accept is that luck had nothing to do with John's big order. John had been working on that customer for months. He had talked repeatedly to a half-dozen people out there. John had stayed up nights figuring out exactly what was best for them. Then he got our engineers to make preliminary designs of the equipment. John wasn't lucky, unless you can call carefully planned work and patiently executed plans luck. Suppose luck were used to reorganize General Motors. If luck determined who does what and who goes where, every business in the nation would fall apart. Assume for a moment that General Motors were to be completely reorganized on the basis of luck. To carry out the reorganization, the names of all employees would be placed in a barrel. The first name drawn would be the president, the second name the executive vice president, and so on down the line. 
Sounds stupid, doesn't it? Well, that's how luck would work. People who rise to the top in any occupation, business management, selling, law, engineering, acting, or what have you, get there because they have superior attitudes and use their good sense in applied hard work. Conquer luck excusitis in two ways. Number one, accept the law of cause and effect. Take a second look at what appears to be someone's good luck. You'll find that not luck, but preparation, planning, and success-producing thinking preceded his good fortune. Take a second look at what appears to be someone's bad luck. Look, and you'll discover certain specific reasons. Mr. Success receives a setback. He learns and profits. But when Mr. Mediocre loses, he fails to learn. Number two, don't be a wishful thinker. Don't waste your mental muscles dreaming of an effortless way to win success. We don't become successful simply through luck. Success comes from doing those things and mastering those principles that produce success. Don't count on luck for promotions, victories, the good things in life. Luck simply isn't designed to deliver these good things. Instead, just concentrate on developing those qualities in yourself that will make you a winner. Chapter 3 Build Confidence and Destroy Fear Friends mean well when they say, It's only your imagination. Don't worry. There's nothing to be afraid of. But you and I know this kind of fear medicine never really works. Such soothing remarks may give us fear relief for a few minutes or maybe even a few hours. But the it's-only-in-your-imagination treatment doesn't really build confidence and cure fear. Yes, fear is real, and we must recognize it exists before we can conquer it. Most fear today is psychological. Worry, tension, embarrassment, panic all stem from mismanaged negative imagination. But simply knowing the breeding ground of fear doesn't cure fear. If a physician discovers you have an infection in some part of your body, he doesn't stop there. He proceeds with treatment to cure the infection. The old it's-only-in-your-mind treatment presumes fear doesn't really exist, but it does. Fear is real. Fear is success enemy number one. Fear stops people from capitalizing on opportunity. Fear wears down physical vitality. Fear actually makes people sick, causes organic difficulties, shortens life. Fear closes your mouth when you want to speak. Fear, uncertainty, lack of confidence, explains why we still have economic recessions. Fear explains why millions of people accomplish little and enjoy little. Truly, fear is a powerful force. In one way or another, fear prevents people from getting what they want from life. Fear of all kinds and sizes is a form of psychological infection. We can cure a mental infection the same way we cure a body infection, with specific proved treatments. First, though, as part of your pre-treatment preparation, condition yourself with this fact. All confidence is acquired, developed. No one is born with confidence. Those people you know who radiate confidence, who have conquered worry, who are at ease everywhere and all the time, acquired their confidence, every bit of it. You can too. This chapter shows how. During World War II, the Navy made sure that all of its new recruits either knew how to swim or learned how, the idea being, of course, that the ability to swim might someday save the sailor's life at sea. Non-swimming recruits were put into swimming classes. I watched a number of these training experiences. In a superficial sort of way, it was amusing to see young, healthy men terrified by a few feet of water. One of the exercises, I recall, required the new sailor to jump, not dive, from a board six feet in the air into eight or more feet of water, while a half-dozen expert swimmers stood by. In a deeper sense, it was a sad sight. 
the fear those young men displayed was real. Yet all that stood between them and the defeat of that fear was one drop into the water below. On more than one occasion, I saw young men accidentally pushed off the board. The result? Fear defeated. This incident, familiar to thousands of former Navy men, illustrates just one point. Action cures fear. Indecision, postponement, on the other hand, fertilize fear. Jot that down in your success rulebook right now. Action cures fear. Action does cure fear. Several months ago, a very troubled executive in his early 40s came to see me. He had a responsible job as a buyer for a large retailing organization. Worriedly, he explained, I'm afraid of losing my job. I've got that feeling that my days are numbered. Why? I asked. Well, the pattern is against me. Sales figures in my department are off 7% from a year ago. This is pretty bad, especially since the store's total sales are up 6%. I've made a couple of unwise decisions recently, and I've been singled out several times by the merchandise manager for not keeping pace with the company's progress. I've never felt quite like this before, he continued. I've lost my grip, and it shows. My assistant buyer senses it. The salespeople see it, too. Other executives, of course, are aware that I'm slipping. One buyer even suggested at a meeting of all head buyers the other day that part of my line should be put in his department, where he said it could make money for the store. It's like drowning and having a crowd of spectators just standing there waiting for me to sink away. The executive talked on, elaborating further on his predicament. Finally, I cut in and asked, What are you doing about it? What are you trying to do to correct the situation? Well, he answered, There isn't much I can do, I guess, but hope for the best. To this comment, I asked, Honestly now, is hope enough? Pausing, but not giving him a chance to answer, I put another question to him. Why not take action to support your hope? Go on, he said. Well, there are two kinds of action that seem to fit your case. First, start this afternoon to move those sales figures upward. We've got to face it. There's a reason your sales are slipping. Find it. Maybe you need a special sale to clear out your slow-moving merchandise, so you'll be in a position to buy some fresh stock. Perhaps you can rearrange your display counters. Maybe your salespeople need more enthusiasm. I can't pinpoint what will turn your sales volume upward, but something will. And it would probably be wise to talk privately with your merchandise manager. He may be on the verge of putting you out, but when you talk it over with him and ask his advice, he'll certainly give you more time to work things out. It's too expensive for the store to replace you as long as top management feels there's a chance you'll find a solution. I went on. Then get your assistant buyers on the ball. Quit acting like a drowning man. Let people around you know that you're still alive. Courage was again in his eyes. Then he asked, You said there are two kinds of action I should take. What's the second? The second type of action, which you might say is an insurance policy, is to let two or three of your closest business friends in the trade know you might consider an offer from another store assuming, of course, it is substantially better than your present job. I don't believe your job will be insecure after you take some affirmative action to get those sales figures on the rise. But just in case, it's good to have an offer or two. Remember, it's ten times easier for a man with a job to get another job than it is for someone unemployed to connect. Two days ago, this once-troubled executive called me. After our talk, I buckled down. I made a number of changes, but the most basic one was with my salespeople. I used to hold sales meetings once a week, but now I'm holding one every morning. I've got those people really enthusiastic. I guess once they saw some life in me, they were ready to push harder, too. They were just waiting for me to start things moving again. Things sure are working out okay. Last week, my sales were well ahead of a year ago, and much better than the store's average. Oh, by the way, he continued, 
I want to tell you some other good news. I got two job offers since we talked. Naturally, I'm glad, but I've turned them both down since everything is looking good here again. When we face tough problems, we stay mired in the mud until we take action. Hope is a start, but hope needs action to win victories. Put the action principle to work. Next time you experience big fear or little fear, steady yourself. Then search for an answer to this question. What kind of action can I take to conquer my fear? Isolate your fear. Then take appropriate action. Here are some examples of fear and some possible action cures. Type of fear. 1. Embarrassment because of personal appearance. Action. Improve it. Go to a barber shop or beauty salon. Shine your shoes. Get your clothes cleaned and pressed. In general, practice better grooming. It doesn't always take new clothes. 2. Fear of losing an important customer. Work doubly hard to give better service. Correct anything that may have caused customers to lose confidence in you. 3. Fear of failing an examination. Convert worry time into study time. 4. Fear of things totally beyond your control. Turn your attention to helping to relieve the fear of others. Pray. 5. Fear of being physically hurt by something you can't control, such as a tornado or an airplane out of control. Switch your attention to something totally different. Go out into your yard and pull up weeds. Play with your children. Go to a movie. 6. Fear of what other people may think and say. Make sure that what you plan to do is right, then do it. No one ever does anything worthwhile for which he is not criticized. 7. Fear of making an investment or purchasing a home. Analyze all factors, then be decisive. Make a decision and stick with it. Trust your own judgment. 8. Fear of people. Put them in proper perspective. Remember, the other person is just another human being pretty much like yourself. Use this two-step procedure to cure fear and win confidence. 1. Isolate your fear. Pin it down. Determine exactly what you are afraid of. 2. Then take action. There is some kind of action for any kind of fear. And remember, hesitation only enlarges, magnifies the fear. Take action promptly. Be decisive. Much lack of self-confidence can be traced directly to a mismanaged memory. Your brain is very much like a bank. Every day you make thought deposits in your mind bank. These thought deposits grow and become your memory. When you settle down to think or when you face a problem, in effect you say to your memory bank, what do I already know about this? Your memory bank automatically answers and supplies you with bits of information relating to this situation that you deposited on previous occasions. Your memory, then, is the basic supplier of raw material for your new thought. The teller in your memory bank is tremendously reliable. He never crosses you up. If you approach him and say, Mr. Teller, let me withdraw some thoughts I deposited in the past, proving I'm inferior to just about everybody else. He'll say, Certainly, sir. Recall how you failed two times previously when you tried this? Recall what your sixth-grade teacher told you about your inability to accomplish things? Recall what you overheard some fellow workers saying about you. Recall... And on and on Mr. Teller goes digging out of your brain thought after thought that proves you are inadequate. But suppose you visit your memory teller with this request. Mr. Teller, I face a difficult decision. Can you supply me with any thoughts which will give me reassurance? And again, Mr. Teller says, Certainly, sir. But this time, he delivers thoughts you deposited earlier that say you can succeed. Recall the excellent job you did in a similar situation before? Recall how much confidence Mr. Smith placed in you. 
Recall what your good friend said about you. Recall, Mr. Teller, perfectly responsive, lets you withdraw the thought deposits you want to withdraw. After all, it is your bank. Here are two specific things to do to build confidence through efficient management of your memory bank. 1. Deposit only positive thoughts in your memory bank. Let's face it squarely. Everyone encounters plenty of unpleasant, embarrassing, and discouraging situations. But unsuccessful and successful people deal with these situations in directly opposite ways. Unsuccessful people take them to heart, so to speak. They dwell on the unpleasant situations, thereby giving them a good start in their memory. They don't take their minds away from them. At night, the unpleasant situation is the last thing they think about. Confident, successful people, on the other hand, don't give it another thought. Successful people specialize in putting positive thoughts into their memory bank. What kind of performance would your car deliver if every morning before you left for work, you scooped up a double handful of dirt and put it into your crankcase? That fine engine would soon be a mess, unable to do what you want it to do. Negative, unpleasant thoughts deposited in your mind affect your mind the same way. Negative thoughts produce needless wear and tear on your mental motor. They create worry, frustration, and feelings of inferiority. They put you beside the road while others drive ahead. Do this. In these moments when you're alone with your thoughts, when you're driving your car or eating alone, recall pleasant, positive experiences. Put good thoughts in your memory bank. This boosts confidence. It gives you that I-sure-feel-good feeling. It helps keep your body functioning right, too. Here is an excellent plan. Just before you go to sleep, deposit good thoughts in your memory bank. Count your blessings. Recall the many good things you have to be thankful for. Your wife or husband, your children, your friends, your health. Recall the good things you saw people do today. Recall your little victories and accomplishments. Go over the reasons why you are glad to be alive. 2. Withdraw only positive thoughts from your memory bank. I was closely associated several years ago in Chicago with a firm of psychological consultants. They handled many types of cases, but mostly marriage problems and psychological adjustment situations, all dealing with mind matters. One afternoon, as I was talking with the head of the firm about his profession and his techniques for helping the seriously maladjusted person, he made this remark. You know, there would be no need for my services if people would do just one thing. What's that? I asked eagerly. Simply this. Destroy their negative thoughts before those thoughts become mental monsters. Most individuals I try to help, he continued, are operating their own private museum of mental horror. Many marriage difficulties, for example, involve the honeymoon monster. The honeymoon wasn't as satisfactory as one or both of the marriage partners had hoped, but instead of burying the memory, they reflected on it hundreds of times until it was a giant obstacle to successful marital relationships. They come to me as much as five or ten years later. Usually, of course, my clients don't see where their trouble lies. It's my job to uncover and explain the source of their difficulty to them and help them to see what a triviality it really is. A person can make a mental monster out of almost any unpleasant happening my psychologist friend went on. A job failure, a jilted romance, a bad investment, disappointment in the behavior of a teenage child. These are common monsters I have to help troubled people destroy. It is clear that any negative thought, if fertilized with repeated recall, can develop into a real mind monster, breaking down confidence and paving the way to serious psychological difficulties. In an article in Cosmopolitan magazine, The Drive Toward Self-Destruction, Alice Mulcahy pointed out that upward of 30,000 Americans commit suicide each year and another 100,000 attempt to take their own lives.
She went on to say, There is shocking evidence that millions of other people are killing themselves by slower, less obvious methods. Still others are committing spiritual rather than physical suicide, constantly seeking out ways to humiliate, punish, and generally diminish themselves. The psychologist friend mentioned before told me how he helped one of his patients to stop committing mental and spiritual suicide. This patient, he explained, was in her late thirties and had two children. In lay terminology, she suffered from severe depression. She looked back on every incident of her life as being an unhappy experience. Her school days, her marriage, the bearing of her children, the places she had lived all were thought of negatively. She volunteered that she couldn't remember ever having been truly happy. And since what one remembers from the past colors what one sees in the present, she saw nothing but pessimism and darkness. When I asked her what she saw in a picture which I showed her, she said, It looks like there will be a terrible thunderstorm tonight. That was the gloomiest interpretation of the picture I've yet heard. The picture was a large oil painting of the sun low in the sky and a jagged rocky coastline. The painting was very cleverly done and could be construed to be either a sunrise or a sunset. The psychologist commented to me that what a person sees in the picture is a clue to his personality. Most people say it is a sunrise, but the depressed, mentally disturbed person nearly always says it's a sunset. As a psychologist, I can't change what already is in a person's memory, but I can, with the patient's cooperation, help the individual to see his past in a different light. That's the general treatment I used on this woman. I worked with her to help her see joy and pleasure in her past instead of total disappointment. After six months, she began to show improvement. At that point, I gave her a special assignment. Each day, I asked her to think of and write down three specific reasons she has to be happy. Then, at her next appointment with me on Thursdays, I'd go over her list with her. I continued this sort of treatment for three months. Her improvement was very satisfactory. Today, that woman is very well adjusted to her situation. She's positive and certainly as happy as most people. When this woman quit drawing negatives from her memory bank, she was headed toward recovery. Whether the psychological problem is big or little, the cure comes when one learns to quit drawing negatives from one's memory bank and withdraws positives instead. Don't build mental monsters. Refuse to withdraw the unpleasant thoughts from your memory bank. When you remember situations of any kind, concentrate on the good part of the experience. Forget the bad. Bury it. If you find yourself thinking about the negative side, turn your mind off completely. And here is something very significant and very encouraging. Your mind wants you to forget the unpleasant. If you will just cooperate, unpleasant memories will gradually shrivel and the teller in your memory bank will cancel them out. Dr. Melvin S. Hatwick, noted advertising psychologist, in commenting on our ability to remember, says, When the feeling aroused is pleasant, the advertisement has a better chance to be remembered. When the feeling aroused is unpleasant, the reader or listener tends to forget the advertisement message. The unpleasant runs counter to what we want. We don't want to remember it. In brief, it really is easy to forget the unpleasant if we simply refuse to recall it. Withdraw only positive thoughts from your memory bank. Let the others fade away, and your confidence, that feeling of being on top of the world, will zoom upward. You take a big step forward toward conquering fear when you refuse to remember negative, self-deprecating thoughts. Why do people fear other people? Why do many folks feel self-conscious around others? What's behind shyness? What can we do about it? Fear of other people is a big fear, but there is a way to conquer it. You can conquer fear of people if you will learn to put them into proper perspective. A business friend, who was doing exceptionally well operating his own wood novelty plant, 
explained to me how he got the proper perspective of people. His example is interesting. Before I went into the army in World War II, I was scared of just about everybody. You just wouldn't believe how shy and timid I was. I felt everyone else was a lot smarter. I worried about my physical and mental inadequacies. I thought I was born to fail. Then, by some fortunate quirk of fate, I lost my fear of people in the Army. During part of 1942 and 1943, when the Army was inducting men at a terrific clip, I was stationed as a medic at one of the big induction centers. Day after day, I assisted in examining those men. The more I looked at these recruits, the less afraid of people I became. All those men lined up by the hundreds, naked as jaybirds, looked so much alike. Oh, sure, there were fat ones and skinny ones, tall ones and short ones, but they all were confused, all were lonesome. Just a few days before, some of these were rising young executives. Some were farmers, some were salesmen, drifters, blue-collar workers. A few days before, they had been many things, but at the induction center, they were all alike. I figured out something pretty basic back then. I discovered people are alike in many, many more ways than they are different. I discovered the other fellow is pretty much like me. He likes good food. He misses his family and friends. He wants to get ahead. He has problems. He likes to relax. So if the other fellow is basically like me, there's no point in being afraid of him. Now, doesn't that make sense? If the other fellow is basically like me, there's no reason to be afraid of him. Here are two ways to put people in proper perspective. One, get a balanced view of the other fellow. Keep these two points in mind when dealing with people. First, the other fellow is important. Emphatically, he is important. Every human being is. But remember this also. You are important too. So when you meet another person, make it a policy to think, we're just two important people sitting down to discuss something of mutual interest and benefit. A couple of months ago, a business executive phoned to tell me he had just employed a young man whom I had recommended to him shortly before. Do you know what really sold me on that fellow? asked my friend. What? I asked. Well, it was the way he handled himself. Most job applicants, when they walk in here, are half scared. They give me all the answers they think I want to hear. In a way, most job applicants are a little like beggars. They'll accept anything, and they aren't particular. But G handled himself differently. He respected me, but what's just as important, he respects himself. What's more, he asked me as many questions as I asked him. He's no mouse. He's a real man and he's going to do all right. This mutually important attitude helps you keep the situation balanced. The other fellow does not become too important relative to you in your thinking. The other fellow might look frightfully big, frightfully important, but remember, he is still a human being with essentially the same interests, desires, and problems as you. 2. Develop an understanding attitude. People who want figuratively to bite you, growl at you, pick on you, and otherwise chop you down are not rare. If you're not prepared for people like that, they can punch big holes in your confidence and make you feel completely defeated. You need a defense against the adult bully, the fellow who likes to throw his meager weight around. A few months ago, at the reservations desk of a Memphis hotel, I saw an excellent demonstration of the right way to handle folks like this. It was shortly after 5 p.m., and the hotel was busy registering new guests. The fellow ahead of me gave his name to the clerk in a commanding way. The clerk said, Yes, sir, Mr. R., we have a fine single for you. Single? shouted the fellow. I ordered a double. The clerk said, very politely, Let me check, sir. He pulled the guest's reservation from the file and said, I'm sorry, sir, your telegram specified a single. I'd be happy to put you in a double room, sir, if we had any available.
but we simply do not. Then the irate customer said, I don't care what the H that piece of paper says, I want a double. Then he started in with that do-you-know-who-I-am bit, followed with, I'll have you fired, you'll see, I'll have you fired. As best he could, under the verbal tornado, the young clerk injected. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. We'll be really thankful if you support us by clicking the link in the description so that we continue to create amazing content for you.